So I've got to get out the information on this guy because there's just, there's just too much otherwise for me to try to remember it all. Um, the guy we're going to talk about today, I wonder if you've ever heard of him. Anybody ever heard of Augustine? We've quoted him around here. Augustine, his real name was Augustine Aurelius, so he was named after Augustus and Aurelius, two of the ruthless emperors of Rome. And his name looks like it's Augustine, but it's really Augustine is how you pronounce it. That's what I found out. And he's a man whose life relates to kids. You can learn lessons from him. His life relates to those of you that are teenagers. You can certainly learn some lessons from what he did in his life. Young adults, those climbing the corporate ladder, those who have messed their lives up totally and feel like there's nothing they can do to come into a relationship with God. People who want to grow deeper in their relationship with God or want to learn more about him or grow in relationships with each other. If you're one of those people, then his life story will relate to you. At the heart of his story um, is, is found in his most famous book, Confessions. Many people feel that Confessions is the first autobiography ever written in the ancient world. Truth was, it technically wasn't an autobiography. It was a long prayer. But in the prayer, he tells his story. So is that an autobiography? Uh, you can ch decide for yourself. But in this, in this, in the heart of it, he has a famous quote. And I want to read it today as it's kind of the foundation of what we'll be talking about. He says, and man, he means women too, um, and man wants to praise you. Man who is only a small portion of what you have created and who goes about carrying with him his own mortality, the evidence of his own sin and evidence that you resist the proud. Yet still man, the small portion of creation wants to praise you. You stimulate him to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Have you ever heard that quote before? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying that the reason people go around and say, what is my purpose? And I need to know what I believe in. You ever hear people say those kinds of things? I, you know, they're trying to figure out, almost everybody says, I need to know what my purpose in life is. I don't need to know what my meaning in life is. I need to know it. Why? Because God made us to ask those questions. We were made to be in relationship with the creator of the universe. And remember that old song, looking for love in all the wrong places? Too often we're looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for God in all the wrong places. And we won't find him until we finally come to him and rest in him. It was the story of Augustine's life. He had restless early years. Born November 13th, anybody share a birthday? November 13th, 354. That was a long time ago. The Roman Empire was split into three, three um, places at that time, three different empires. And they were split up right around that time. And the Bible had still not entirely been endorsed. It had been put together, but they didn't, you know, people just had fragments of it. They were still putting it together. That's how long ago this was. And that's when he was born. Now, he was born in a place called Bagast in North Africa. Now, I know that. I pronounced it correctly because I Googled it. <laughs> and it was weird. The first time I did this and some lady's voice comes up, I didn't expect that. Have you ever done that? You can look up a pronunciation, how to pronounce something, and it comes up, and you, you've done that, and the lady, isn't it weird, Jessica? The lady's voice goes, Bogus. 
And it freaked me out. I thought, like, where'd that come from? I didn't expect it to start talking to me, you know. So that's so Thagos is how you say it. And it's actually modern-day Algeria. So he's born in this village, in this actually this town. It's a white-walled town, and it has wooded fields all around it. Lions are still roaming the fields. And people hunt boar, and they hunt red wing, and they hunt quail around there. His town was built by the Romans, so it has baths, it has theaters, it has a forum, it has a marketplace, really fancy place, a marble colonnade, really nice place. And this is where he is, is going to be raised. He is a Numidian. Anybody knows what a Numidian is? I didn't know that until today. He is a Numidian. Now, this is, this is what a Numidian is. Um, a Numidian is not a black African, and neither is he or she a white European. There's something in between. Like the Basques in Spain, we don't really know where they came from. But that's his background. See, you learn something in church today. Come here and you will learn the important things in life. (laughs) So a Numidian, so he was a Numidian. And so what he looked like when he was full grown, he was very tall and he had long limbs. And when he walked, he walked in long slopes like this. He had a narrow chest and sloping shoulders, had a high forehead. Um, He had large lips and kind of a bronze complexion. And he had these incredible bright black eyes. Looks kind of like that. That's probably the best drawing of him as an old man when he got white hair with a beard and so forth. So, so that's kind of what he looked like. Now, his father's name was Patricius, and his father was apparently a wealthy man. His family had been wealthy, but they'd lost almost everything they had. He had a farm. He had some slaves. He didn't have very much. And he was a man who was still clinging to paganism, which means he was worshiping things like who? Poseidon and Thor This is before comic books. He didn't know better. (laughs) So his dad's kind of into that stuff. And his dad, you know, uh, his dad is detached. He's more interested in his business. His mom's name is Monica. And that's also a pagan name. But she becomes a follower of Christ. She becomes a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And her dream is to pray each member of her family into heaven. Her her son, Navigius, he becomes a believer and her, her daughter becomes a nun, but her hardest challenge is Augustine. You see, Augustine is very bright, very precocious. He's a spoiled brat. He cheats in all of his games. He figures out how he can take money from people. He steals from the cellar. He steals from the kitchen. He steals from the, the kitchen table. He doesn't like school. He hates math and Greek and says he doesn't know what good it will do anybody. And he's just a total brat. And his mom, trying to overcompensate for dad, is a little bit too permissive and trying to help him. And it, Does it sound familiar with society today? Doesn't it sound like some of the problems that we sometimes have with families? So then he gets into his teenage years and see if they get any better. Well, he has restless teenage years. When he's 12 and 365, he's sent away to school to a place called Madara. And you know what? He really, he really um, begins to like school. And he does well in poetry and some other things. But at an early age, he becomes lustful. And he begins having inappropriate relationships with girls. When he's just a young guy, he begins to get in trouble. So much so that his mother's fearful that he will commit adultery, which he probably does. Bad kid. 
At 16, he comes home for vacation, and they go over to their neighbor's house where they have pears, and they take the pears off the tree and start throwing them to the pigs. They think that's a lot of fun. Maybe you've done some pranks. I know I did some when I was a kid. And for a while, they seemed kind of fun, and then all of a sudden, you start feeling guilty. For the first time in his life, he started feeling a little twinge of guilt. He said, you know what? I'm doing some stuff that's probably not very nice, and I don't really have a reason for doing it, and it's just hurting other people. And it's making me happy for a little bit, but then I feel guilty afterwards. First time he begins to sort of have those feelings in his life. Well, um, after that, you know, he runs his, but dad doesn't have any money, but there's a guy named, named Romanianus, weird names, and he has a statue of himself in town. Can you believe that? While he's still alive, he has a statue. I guess he probably paid for it himself. He's the wealthiest man in town. And he says, this kid's bright. I'll pay for him to go to school at the University of Carthage. This is like sending him off to, to Stanford or Berkeley, a big school. And he says, I'll pay for him to go there. So he sends him off to school. That same year, his dad dies. But he prays to give his life to Christ with Monica, his wife, before he dies. Now Augustine is away at school. And three things happen. One is he begins to really enjoy school. Cicero becomes his hero. Rhetoric is his, is his area. That speaking and writing, he was the best in his class. And he started really taking off. He was absolutely brilliant. On the other hand, he starts thinking, you know, my mom's been trying to push this Christianity thing on me. She's been taking me to church for a long time. The pagan thing, the Christianity thing, that's ancient. I need to get something that's more intellectually stimulating, something that's more caught up with the times. And so he takes on this thing called Manichaeism. And it's kind of like a Star Wars deal where there's dark and there's light. And the, the evil in the world is aggressive and the good in the world is passive. And we really can't control them. We need to do the best we can. And he begins to get into these weird theories and beliefs. And there's a third thing he does. He keeps spending time with women until one of them becomes pregnant. And they have a child out of wedlock called Adiatus, which means gift of God, strangely enough. Um, The lady that he's with becomes his concubine. She's essentially his mistress that he lives with in college. But he can't marry her because she's from another class. He seems to really love her. They stay together for 13 years, but he refers to her as his chain. He knows he shouldn't be doing this, and he feels kind of guilty because he knows he's doing the wrong thing. Even Manichaeism says that you need to control your passions. You need to, to pray that you control your passions and get it under control and, and not be living like this. And, and so he says, I prayed for chastity and then just said, just not yet. He goes back home, and he becomes a teacher in Pagas. And a friend of his, who's a maniche, goes into a coma. And a priest prays over this maniche, and the boy lives. And he talks to him, and he says, no, it was true. I've given my life to Christ. But before he can explain it, he dies two weeks later. And Augustine is very much distraught and very depressed. Life isn't coming together for him, even though he's trying everything out. Now he moves into his restless adult years. Once again, Romanianus comes through for him, and he gets a position as a professor at his old college, University of Carthage. And he goes back, and before long, he is the master of rhetoric. He is, again, absolutely brilliant. His mother, however, follows him. She has a dream that he will receive Christ, and she follows her son, praying for him, pleading that God will bring him into a relationship with himself. He isn't interested. 
he wants to go to Rome where his hero Cicero spoke. And he wants to become a senator and become one of the most prominent men in the Western Empire. And so that is where he is next headed. Romanianus comes through again and he gets a position there and his mom pleads with him, don't go, don't go, don't go. So he lies to her and he steals away in the night with his mistress and his child and he takes off. And on he goes. Are we having problems, bud? It's good? Okay, everything's good. So, so he takes off and, and now, you know, he's in Rome. And while he's in Rome, long story short, is this one guy recognizes him and says, says this, he hears him speak, and he says, this guy's great, and he's not really committed religiously. In fact, he's beginning to have problems with Manichaeism. He's struggled since the death of his friend. He's debating people, and he gets to town, and he finds that it's considered a folklore religion um, in Rome. And so he begins to think, what is it that I really believe in? And so this guy, Symmachus, the senator, appoints him to a position in Milan. Milan is one of the most prominent universities in the world. And it and you know what's prominent about it is that's where the emperor lives. Young Emperor Valentinius II. What's cool about this is he gets to meet with the emperor on a regular basis. He's like a press secretary to the president. And he is now one of the most prominent men already in the world, and he's only 30 years of age. And he is in the right position. He gets his big villa. Italian villa to live in. And he brings in his very best friend, who's brilliant, Olypius, who's like his alter ego. And he brings in Nebridius, another friend, and Pisidius is one of these guys had weird names, you know, who is one of his students. His mom comes there, his mistress, his son, they all move in together. And, and he, you know, he has his Roman orgies and his parties and he's meeting all these celebrities and he's still not feeling good about his life. And his mother suggests that you're not going to ever get ahead if you do not marry a woman in your own class. So she persuades him to get rid of his chain. And he sends her back to Africa, but he keeps his son. And he said it was like tearing part of him out of his body. They find a prospective wife, but he has to stay chaste for two years. He can't do it. He gets a mistress within a short period of time. He said just, just to take care of phys- physical satisfaction. I've seen this happen a lot with people through the years. People kind of go off and try to live their lives the way they want to, and then they feel horrible and guilty and restless. And, you know, for a while it's fun, and then everything crashes. And then when they try to figure it out, they say, okay, I'm going to live a good life now. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a good person. And that lasts for maybe a year or two, and they find they can't do it, and then they just kind of drop back, and they're sort of moderated to the position they were before. He's at that place in his life. Monica is still praying. And then um, it happens. He finds his rest in God. Much of it comes through the influence of Ambrose. Ambrose was the bishop of Milan. He was a savvy former um, lawyer and politician. He was a powerful man. He was a dynamic orator. And he was a pioneer in hymnody. He was one of the first to bring music to the church in a modern way. And so he'd have these church services that were like, like an ancient um, megachurch. And all these people would come in and there'd be all this music and he'd speak right to the heart of the issue. In fact, he was not afraid to pull any punches. He'd talk about the political problems of his day. One time, 5,000 imperial guards came in to shut down his service and he just preached right through it until they left. And so Augustine said, this guy is quite the dude. I like this guy. He was very impressed by him as a speaker and as a leader. And when he met him, as he would say years later, Ambrose treated him like he was his own son. 
Ambrose took an interest in him. He assigned his, his um, assistant, Simplicianus, to talk to him and to talk to him about religion and philosophy. And he began to kind of work through the issues of life. And he began to get more and more depressed and more and more frustrated. He just felt so empty and he felt like life wasn't working. And he was such a nerd, you know, and he's trying to figure it out with his head. And then one day, he was 32 in 386, um, this man comes to visit him in his villa, and he and Olypius, his buddy, are talking to him. The man's name is Potitian, and he is an African, but he's also a follower of Christ, and he is also an officer in the imperial household. And he notices that he has some, some letters, and they're the letters are the writings, the fragments of the letters of Paul, the epistles of, the, of Paul that we have. And he says, he gets him going. He says, I have some friends who read the life of St. Anthony, the first biography written. Anthony became a monk, so my friends became monks. And when their girlfriends, their fiancés read it, they became nuns. They gave up everything right then and there. And they were like, they gave up everything? Yeah, they, this is, they believed in this stuff, and it absolutely transformed and changed their lives. Everything changed, all their problems. And he, he's just trying to figure this baby out. And it's driving him nuts. And so he turns to his friend. He says these famous words. He says, what is the matter with us? Simple men take heaven by violence, but we, heartless and learned, see how we wallow in flesh and blood. We have no hearts. We only have heads. And we can't figure this thing out. There's something that we're missing here. What is it that we're missing? And he becomes so frustrated, he goes into his garden, and Olypius follows him for fear that he will do harm to himself. And he begins to cry out to God, and he says, How long, how long? Tomorrow and tomorrow, why not now? Why should there not be an end to my uncleanness now? And he hears a voice of a little child chanting, and it says, Take up and read. Take up and read. And he goes to the Bible, what he has, and he picks it up and he reads Romans chapter 13, verses uh, 13 through 14. And these are the words he reads. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies, which he participated in, and drunkenness, which is part of his life, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, which is part of him, not in dissension or jealousy as he had stabbed people in the back to bring himself up to the top position he could be in. But what were you supposed to do to get that under control? What was he to do? Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about, the, uh, or about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Clothe yourself with Jesus. There's nothing you can do. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't make it all right on your own. You need to fully surrender. You need to clothe yourself with Jesus. You need to get your mind off of the bad and fill your mind with him. And suddenly it clicks for this dude. And he gets it. And he puts his finger on it and he's calm. And he shows Olypius and Olypius gets it too. And they run and then they tell Monica and they celebrate. And they did something that was uncommon for us today, but was common for them in those days. And maybe we can learn some from. You know, today we usually figure that if a person's really doing well spiritually, they have a lot of money and they're wealthy and everything's going well for them. In those days, it was the opposite. He gave up his job. He gave up his home. He gave up 
all of his positions and all of his prestige, and he gave up ever marrying, and he went off to a countryside to think and pray about it all with those closest to him. And when he was done, he decided that God wanted him to start a monastery. And so he came back to Milan, and he was baptized by Ambrose on Easter Sunday, 387, and then he decided to go back to Thagast to teach. An incredible story. Absolutely incredible story. And so now he's going to go back to Thagast to teach. And, um, but, but you know what? He's telling God what he's going to do. He's resting in God, but he's not resting in God's will. Do we ever do that? This is what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to start a monastery. I've decided this is what is going to happen. God has another plan for him. And that's what we're going to, to look at now, how he changes that. First thing that happens is as he's getting ready to go to Thagast, he and his mother, she's, you know, his big source of support, and they, they get stuck in a seaport village for a while, and she dies. They go over there, and they start the monastery, which actually becomes the Augustinian order within the Roman Catholic Church today, although the Roman Catholic Church hadn't really technically taken form then, but that the order is now in the church. And he's the guy who establishes three years of training for people, that you have really good training for people when they go into ministry, which we've passed down a lot of his education even to today. But while he's there, his son, very promising 18-year-old Adiatitus, dies. His best friend, one of his best friends in Nibirdius, dies. So he loses his mistress, his mother, his son, and one of his best friends all within five years. And he's humbled, and he's broken. And then in 391, he doesn't like to travel, but he's told that the major town, the most major town of his region, Hippo, I don't know if they named it after hippopotamuses or not. I haven't looked that up. I didn't look up how to pronounce it. I figured it's Hippo. So he goes to Hippo, and he goes there because there's a guy from the Secret Service who supposedly has come there, he's defected, and he wants to become part of his monastery. When he gets there, Valerius is the bishop, and he's an old man, and a wise old man, and he hears he's coming. So when he hears he's coming to the church service, like today's church service, he looks at him and he says, oh, he changes his message. He says, you know what we need to talk about today is we need more, what? We need more priests. And guess who's sitting here? Augustine is sitting here. Wow, Augustine, we've read your writings. You're a brilliant man. We know you want to spend your life praying and studying about God. But you know, Augustine, we could really use you as a priest. And everybody says, yeah, that's a great idea. And they all basically gang up on him. And he's weeping because he realizes this isn't what he wants, but it's what God wants. And so he becomes a priest. And Valerius, everybody needs a Valerius. Like a loving father nurtures him for about five years. And then when he dies in 396, at just like 40, 41 years of age, he becomes the bishop of one of the most prominent churches in the land, in areas in the land. And now he's ready for the last part, which is resting um, at rest with God. You ever heard anybody say they want to work in their sweet spot? He's in his sweet spot. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that God has, we need to, to do good works, the works that God has created us to do. That God has created in advance for each person in this room different things that he wants you to do. And in many cases, some of the things you've done up to this point in your life can be significantly used in people's lives in the future, and you don't even realize it. He didn't realize that, but all the stuff that he had done up till that point, God was going to use. 
Now he's a leader. He's a natural leader. And the guys that he has led, they all become bishops and leaders. So they influence all of North Africa. But here's what else. Not only is that true, but he's given this big, big residence that he lives in. And he entertains and ministers to people all day long, all night long. That's what he'd been doing for years before, right? God had set him up for that very job. So now he's doing what he was made to do, just like God is setting you up for ministries in areas that you may not realize. And he's building relationships and caring for people, though he's very humble and he dresses humbly and so forth. Um, But he becomes a judge because they take 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 seriously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, you know what it tells us? It tells us that we should not sue other followers of Christ. We should not bring lawsuits against each other. So they go to see him as a judge instead. And he works through that for them. And he, he helps pay, you know, manage you know, and negotiate arguments and marriages and problems with property and breaks down mob rule and stuff. And he does that most of the time. But you know what he's best at? He's best at preaching and teaching because that's what he was, a rhetorician, right? But he, he radically changes it because, you know, great speakers, what do they do? They try to wow you. And they try to be the artist. And he said, usually we try to speak above you. So you think, man, that guy's so smart. I don't even know what he's saying, but he's so smart. And he says, I don't want to do that. I want you to understand me. And so this is this. Now, understand this. This is how he would speak. They said he would speak conversationally. He would ask his people questions as he went along. He would come with, you know, he would get people to laugh, to cry, um, to respond to him, to clap. And he, they said he, would, he wouldn't hardly use any notes. And sometimes he'd throw them aside and just start speaking extemporaneously. He had, and, and he just connected with people in an incredible way. Now, he's known for that, but he's probably best known for his confrontations with he, you know, man, Manichaeism. He took on the guy who was for Manichaeism, and he debated and made such a fool out of him. The guy left town never to come back again, and Manichaeism died. But he also took on other challenges like Donatism and Pelagianism, all these big challenges in the early church. He served in the councils of Carthage where they helped put together and finalize the Bible that we have today. He wrote confessions. He wrote City of God, which is his classic, because what happened is Rome was defeated by barbarians and all the Romans fled to Carthage and to to Hippo and to his land. And when he got them there, he thought people said, you know why Rome has fallen? It's the fault of the Christians. He said, no, it's not the fall of the Christians. He says, we have a city of God. It took him 10 years to write this. The city of God and the city of man. The city of man is the material world which we observe. The city of God is what God's doing for his own purposes that we don't always understand. And he said some pretty bold things that weren't always comfortable. He said, you lost your home. You lost your job. You lost your money. But perhaps now you're ready to look to your true treasure in heaven because those things owned you. And maybe it was good that God, in his spiritual realm, took it away from you. He had some very, very profound things to say and think about on that issue. And then he wrote on Christian doctrine, which is all about how to preach and teach and so forth. On the way, he involved himself in theology. Listen to some of the things he talked about. Maybe you've thought about some of these things. The nature and source of evil. You ever thought about that? The nature of the church and its sacraments. Original sin. The relationship of grace and free will, predestination. Now, when he's working with this stuff, he usually doesn't even have a whole Bible available to him. He can't click on YouTube. 
He doesn't go to Google or anything. He doesn't have a lot of people to call. He can't pick up the phone and call or text people on stuff. What do you think about original sin? You know, he doesn't have all that. So he's working just off of what he has. And it's amazing. He made a lot of mistakes. He was very humble, too. He said, I don't always know. But it's amazing how much he hits the target. And even when he doesn't, he has food for thought. And he gives us words that we didn't have to help us explain what we believe in today. Um, Catholics and Protestants both claim him. Martin Luther was part of the Augustinian order, was most influenced by him. John Calvin was very influenced by him. And he's considered by many, if not most, the greatest theologian of all time. In practical matters, abortion. He would say, I don't know when conception begins. He didn't have ultrasound. But he says, you know what? He says, I've seen babies that have been torn from the womb, aborted and, and cut up. And I know that they were really children inside that, ba- that womb. Marriage. Marriage was looked down upon a lot of times in those days. There's kind of a second-class deal. He said, no, marriage I think is important. Not as important as singleness, but marriage can be good. And he supported second-class marriage. I wonder why. Have you ever heard of the just war theory? It comes from him. Religious tolerance, he practiced it appropriately without compromising his faith. Miracles, he believed in them within reason and wrote about that. And even non-Christians in in schools will will study him as a philosopher. Listen to some of his quotes. Um, In essentials, unity. That's how it is in our church, right? What we believe, what the Bible teaches, um, our philosophy, those are the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. Do what you want to do. But in all things, charity. Do what is right. How about this? God commands what we cannot do. Have you ever noticed how God wants you to do things that you look at in the Bible and say, I can't do that. That's impossible. Why? That we may know what we ought to seek from him. That we may know what we ought to seek from him. Uh, He says Adam was able not to sin. He didn't have to sin, but he did. He said we are not able not to sin. We got to keep on sin. We We just do. But in heaven, this is the good news, we will not be able to sin. Profound thoughts. My favorite, love God and do as you please. Remember, we've talked about that before. If you really love God, you will love others. And that's why we want to have small groups to help train you on how to love God more so that we can express that in loving others in our community and world. Eventually, the barbarians came to Hippo. They were tearing down the walls, and he may have been killed. Uh, He was comforting the people there. Placidius, his old pal, had come to hide out there, and uh, he got a fever. Ten days or so later, he died. He was 76. The walls came tumbling down. Posidius somehow managed to save all of his letters and writings, and that's why we have a sermon today. Thank you, Posidius. So we have something to talk about. Or maybe not, if you don't like it. Um, 430, he died. Now, how do you find rest in God? Parents, how do you find rest in God? A couple lessons to learn from this. One, as parents, uh, best to marry people that both know Jesus so you don't have the problems that Patricia's and Monica had in the first place. But second, to raise your children according to what the Bible teaches in passages like Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. In Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 2, it shows us that fathers are not to be detached, neither are mothers to be permissive or the other way around, or to be balanced in raising our children. But what's the main thing that Monica did? 
What was the main thing she did to help her son? She prayed. She prayed all the time. I've known some Monicas through the years who have radically changed lives. I remember my grandmother praying for me one night. Um, we were sharing my sister's bedroom. They had twin beds in there because there wasn't a room for her. And I woke up to see my grandmother on her knees praying. And I thought I saw her with my, you know, say something about me. When somebody's praying about you, that's a very profound thing to have happen. How about youth? He, um, you know, I think it's good for us to realize that um, we all have our sins and to realize that the things that you do wrong will affect your parents and they will affect your friends and they will affect other people. And we need to confess the things that we've done wrong. Better the earlier on to learn to confess and tell God you're sorry. Uh, maybe even write it down on a piece of paper as I once did and then turn it into the fire, throw it, rip it up and throw it away because God does forgive us. And that's our next step, sinners. Here's a passage for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You feel like you're like Augustine. You can't make it to heaven. You can't do it on your own. It says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. We'll agree with that, but do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will enter, inherit the kingdom of God. We're in for trouble because probably all of us can relate to something there at some point in our lives. And then he gives the answer. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I don't care what problem you have, where you have struggled in your life, you probably can't beat Augustine, be any worse. God will forgive you and take you as you are. I don't care what you're struggling with today. God can forgive you and work through that problem with you and make it right. River Oak Grace Community Church has a wonderful program called um, Celebrate Recovery, 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Uh, if you're having struggles, I encourage you to go there. But come and talk to us as well as we'd love to pray with you and counsel you and help you through that. Those who want true rest, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Maybe it's time to spend a little bit time, less time with television, work, hobbies, school, and carve out even a half hour a day to read your Bible and pray. Or maybe it's time to give more of what you have, to give more money. You know, it's been said that if every Christian tithed, we wouldn't have world hunger. Did you know that? If every Christian gave 10% to the church in America, we would stamp out world hunger. If every Christian in this church gave 10% to our church, we wouldn't need a charity in town. It's just that simple. That's why the Bible says to do it. And imagine what would happen if people did that. We would all benefit, ironically, um, by giving, we'd, we'd actually get. Relationships, building those relationships with one another as he did. And how about students? Being students of the Bible, learning all you can from anybody you can learn from. Even read Augustine. I can't, I'll confess, I can't read Augustine. He's really heavy for me, but I can read more about him than I read his actual stuff. But whatever I listen to, whoever I listen to, I try to learn from everybody. But I always make this my first textbook. It has to agree with what the Bible says. Because even guys like Augustine made their mistakes. Final question is, have you found rest in God? 
If you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, you may have gone through a lot of these same challenges in your own way. And if this relates to you today, we want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ. Encourage you to come and talk to us afterwards that we may uh, share with you more about how you can come into the kingdom of God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for Augustine and, and men like him through the years that you have used in powerful and meaningful ways. Um, he was a jerk. He was a horrible man and hurt a lot of people in his life, but you transformed him, and you can do the same for any person. Nobody is too evil for you to transform their lives if they relax their own self-efforts and they rest in you. So, Lord, I pray for those that don't know you, that they would find rest in you today, that they'd surrender their lives to you and to your work in their lives. And if they do know you, that they would grow in that relationship with you and find a perpetual rest in you and not in their own self-efforts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.